Welcome to Media Futures Spotlights, a series exploring the great research coming out of the Media Futures at UNSW Sydney. My name is Andrew Brooks, and I'm a researcher in the Media Futures Hub at UNSW and your host for today. I'm speaking to you from the unceded lands of the Wongal people in what is now called Sydney, Australia. And I want to acknowledge the ongoing care and custodianship of these lands and pay our respects to elders past and present. I want to acknowledge the ongoing resistance to the violence of settler colonialism and express our commitment to struggles for Indigenous sovereignty. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. My guest today is Diana Kramers, a PhD candidate in the School of Arts and Media at UNSW. Diana's research looks at the politics of voice and the politics of listening in relation to refugees. This work investigates the democratic potential of self-determined refugee voices and considers how such voices contribute to the struggles against border violence and border policy. Diana, welcome to the Media Futures podcast. Thank you so much, Andrew. To get things started, Diana, can you tell us about your current research and how you came to work on refugee issues? Uh, my current research, as you already mentioned in your introduction, is about uh, the democratic potential of refugee voices. And my interest for the subject came from, like my primary interest was on listening, where I did a project on listening practices in a governmental setting. And also I did uh, research on community media projects and how to develop professional practices in producing community media. And uh, yeah, th those two uh, subjects came together in this project. I was trying to identify a group of voices that uh, would benefit most from my research. And I think in the Australian context, uh, refugees voice and also listening to voices. And uh, there's multiple aspects that uh, come in play for uh, refugees and that's landed on refugee voices to analyze how uh, policymakers can listen to voices in general, but also to marginalized voices in Western societies. Thank you so much. That's so interesting. It's so interesting to hear you speak about speaking and listening, the voice and the act of listening. And these are often things that we kind of take for granted. They're often things that are presumed to be neutral or activities and, and, um, and actions that we, we don't often conceptualise in political terms. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how you understand these concepts as politically charged concepts and why it's important for us perhaps to insist on a politics of voice and a politics of listening. For me, I think it all starts with communication, where listening and voice are, of course, the two individual counterparts of communication, where communication ideally is a two-way street. But in our Western societies, and this is the work of Nick Caldry, there's much more attention for a voice and the politics of voice and how we, in our society, we value voice more. Also, just imagine... Uh, like the training we get uh, in our school systems is to yeah, get good at presenting, at debating, in conquering the ideas of others, while the attention for listening is a much less developed subject. While actually, if you're talking about communication, uh, also listening should get attention and how to listen and what listen, listening can be and to understand it as an important communicational practice, but also as an important political practice. That's where my interest comes from. 
I mean, it's so interesting to hear you speak about, you know, the kind of activeness of listening and the the role that listening plays in kind of enabling intersubjectivity and kind of what we might understand as the kind of conditions for solidarity as well. So that's so, um, yeah, it's so interesting. You know, this work on refugees and border policy, I suppose, by extension, is work that is extremely politicised in the settler colony of Australia. You know, the demonisation of refugees has been really central to political campaigns over at least the last two decades, with both major political parties campaigning on platforms that emphasise the policing of borders and producing vague appeals to national securities. And there's also been bipartisan support for the implementation of a brutal regime of mandatory incarceration of refugees who arrived by boat in both onshore and offshore detention centres over the last few decades. Can you talk a little bit about the role that mainstream media has played and continues to play in shaping discourse about refugees and border policy? Um, and what impact do unjust and perhaps racist rep representations of refugee voices have on refugee communities? I stepped into this project and I identified uh, the refugee policies and the refugee situation in Australia as something yeah, that can be scrutinized and analyzed. And I also heard it in the way you asked your question. Uh, a lot of what we know about refugees and refugee situations is informed by mainstream media. And there's heaps of research about media content and how media shapes a representation either in language or in images or in the combination of both to shape an idea of refugees. But in the refugee space, there's actually the legal distinction between refugees and asylum seekers is obscured in this uh, representation where uh, refugees will seek refuge in their home countries or in the countries they leave, while asylum seekers are the ones that yeah, you were speaking about that arrive on the Australian shore and will be detained uh, within the harsh policies. And uh, in my research, I am looking exactly at this concept where just the word refugee, the representation of refugee, what does it uh, unchain in our associations and also what does that mean for our understanding of uh, refugee issues? Because I just described the distinction between refugees and asylum seekers, but then uh, if you look even a bit closer in human rights and refugee policies in Australia, there are many uh, visa categories that will uh, define uh, what sort of program you you are in when you arrive in Australia, what are your opportunities to work, what are your opportunities to uh, yeah, start a new life. And I'm interested to find out with that idea of what media shapes, how can uh, self-determined refugee voices bring an alternative to this idea? And also how organizations that work with refugees to facilitate voice or to amplify voice, how do they bring an alternative to this media imaginary almost of the refugee yeah before we turn to this question of, of self-determined voices which i think is, is such an important one and so central to your research i wonder if we could talk just a, a little bit more about the sort of media determined image and and whether you can sort of draw out what this image is of the of the refugee which 
you know, you're sort of suggesting here that it's a figure that's been systematically demonized and dehumanized. You know, listening to you speak, I, I, I couldn't help but think about the sort of iconic images um, from way back in 2001 um, around the Australian federal election. Uh, which seemed to mark a, a somewhat decisive turning point in refugee discourse and the amplification of what we might think of a kind of as an effective politics of, of fear. And I'm thinking here of the image of, of the suspected irregular entry vessel number four that was intercepted um, off Christmas Island um, by the HMAS Adelaide back in 2001 and which it became famous through this sort of ch children overboard saga uh, a photograph that was released to the media that supposedly provided evidence that children had been sacrificed to the ocean, but was later revealed to have been taken after the vessel had sunk and during a coordinated rescue attempt. So I'm, I'm wondering if you might speak a little bit to what this media image of asylum seekers and refugees um, is, how it's been constructed um, and how refugees have been demonised and, and dehumanised. Yes, uh, yeah, that is research I've been analysing from other schoolers because the, the situation from 2001 has changed dramatically. Also with 9-11, uh, same time frame where all of a sudden the fear for people from Islamic countries was raised and also politically weaponized yeah, to frame Muslims as uh, a possible threat to uh, Western nations. Um, so that's something that plays in in these uh, media representations or in the public sphere, maybe the, the public fear, maybe the uh, moral panics around unregulated arrivals on uh, Western shore. Uh, because I think there's two things to uh, say, like there's the uh, media representations in general that have changed in this frame of fear. And also just, I think a lot of the media representations show the, uncontrollable nature of it, or at least they make it, uh, as it, they make it show as if it's uncontrollable, where we see like vessels full of people uh, that uh, arrive taking uh, high risk, maybe even making sacrifices um, only for um, what is understood as entering the Western nation and then the luck seekers and the queue jumpers and the, all the, the language and the discourse that is accompanied by this. And a lot of the research um, focuses also on the responses in the public sphere and the responses of government, where there's either this terrorism frame of these people are threats and we need to keep them out and we need to protect our nation, or a humanitarian frame where these people are victims and we need to help them. And this the broad structures in the media representation between criminalization and victimization also leads to a binary representation between the good refugee, the deserving refugee, and the bad refugee. So the refugee that doesn't uh, comply with the Australian law and uh, with the visa processes that Australia has set out for people to arrive safely. And this binary between the good and the bad refugee is apparent in many uh, spaces between the deserving refugee and the asylum seeker who tries to come aboard but then will be detained because they didn't comply with the visa regulations in Australia. 
thank you so much, Diana. That's so um, that's so interesting. This kind of binary of the good refugee and the bad refugee, or the the criminal and the victim, they have become such um, uh, predictable tropes in the media space. There is such a a racializing logic to the good versus the bad refugee, the criminal versus the victim. Uh, and you know, I noticed that you you mentioned here the way that world events, the September 11 attacks, the war on terror have contributed to the perception of refugees and to the representation of good versus bad refugees. Um, I wonder if you you might comment on the kind of racialization of the refugee and perhaps also how this relates to the project of settler colonialism. I think uh, to give a good answer on that, I will um, also bring in research from Walters, who did research in the UK situation, where he noticed that in developing refugee policies, there was also a strong interference between the idea of refugee protection and giving asylum to uh, people in need, and the idea of the skilled migrant, where people can be of use of the national economy. He introduced the term domo politics, where the nation is seen as a safe nation that has to be protected from unwelcome outsiders and where the nation becomes a warm home of safety. And in my research, I also look at how what's uh, very clear from uh, the media representation in this binary, as well in the binary, uh, the side of the good refugee as the bad refugee, is that the refugees are presented as others. So uh, Australia as a nation, and of course that's the settler colonial project of Australia and the nation of Australia and the Australian identity, that's a very strong force in defining uh, who is us and who is them. And uh, in refugees, and especially while they're overseas or, or trying to arrive at the Australian shore, in the media representation, they are pictured as the other. That is also on terms of where Australianness, uh, this is research from Kassan Hage, who analyzed Australian identity and also introduced the idea that the Australian identity, Australianness, is very close connected to whiteness, where everything that isn't Australia then, uh, as a consequence, become uh, non-white. And as many refugees um, that are arriving in the recent conflicts around the world, but also, yeah, if you look back uh, in history, that most refugees don't have whiteness, like they don't look white. They are uh, maybe from Asia, the Middle East, from African countries. And just the, the image, of course, of these non-white people already connects to that uh, idea of the other. And uh, Walters, who did research in the uh, UK on uh, refugee policies, he introduced the idea of domo politics, where uh, the nation is seen as a safe home, as a warm home that needs to be protected from unwelcome outsiders. And uh, this idea of the uh, warm nation, he says, is also used to um, protect the nation almost as uh, a fort, where uh, yeah, the home also becomes like the, the, the home country to protect and to defend. And then everyone who tries to come in is othered. And in this binary that I described before, of course, the asylum seekers that are criminalized are 
uh, a threat to the nation, while uh, the good refugees that deserve protection and also are deserving of the goodwill of the nations, in this case Australia, they will be welcomed but still conceptualized, I guess, as others, not only for refugees but also for uh, migrants. Um, it's almost impossible to attain uh, full Australianness uh, because you can never attain Australianness and whiteness at the same time, is what uh, Gus and Hager has theorized. Yeah, that's so well put. And I think the, the kind of white possessive claim that you speak about, this idea of Australianness that's tied to whiteness, which this thing with Professor Eileen Morton Robinson would call the kind of white possessive, is such a powerful force in producing this othering. And it makes me think of her formulation here, you know, maybe a way of holding the kind of othering of First Nations people and the othering of refugees in a kind of continuum. Um, she has this powerful formulation where she says, you know, the white possessive claim or settler legitimacy kind of comes under attack or it perceives itself to continuously be under attack from an internal threat, i.e. Indigenous sovereignty, as well as an external threat as in the kind of refugee or migrant other. And so it kind of continues to produce this discursive othering and takes very material forms as well and very often very violent forms. So powerfully, powerfully put and such a, you know, such a violent construction. Thank you so much. Perhaps we can finish with a question um, about self-determined media. And I know this is the sort of other side of your work. One side is looking at the production of these um, racialized rep representations or these sort of um, stereotypical representations um, of the refugee and the other is is investigating the potentiality and the possibility of self-determined refugee media so can you explain to us what you mean by self-determined media and perhaps also why such media is vital in penetrating the rigidity of the australian border regime um i think i also have to add that i'm not only looking at the Australia border regime, as uh, that word for me associates with like the, the asylum seeker policies and the detainment, but I'm also looking at the settlement processes and the settlement programs for good refugees to <laughs> stay within the binary. And I am looking at how self-determined voices where refugees can tell stories on their own terms, um, how that can be an alternative to the refugee representation that we find in uh, mainstream media. Uh, but in producing media, yeah, we step into the field of media production where yeah, you need resources to be able to produce media. And often when you arrive uh, as a refugee, that's not your first priority to have those resources available. But there are many organizations that do bring those resources and facilitate uh, refugee voices. And it's also possible for people to become active on social media and, for instance, to produce podcasts. And uh, there's also there a distinction between refugee-led organizations that want to amplify refugee voices and organizations, civil society organizations that uh, work with or for refugees, resource centers or advocacy uh, organizations that amplify uh, those voices. And I'm uh, interested to uh, see how in all these sort of programs, projects, media, what sort of voices do emerge there? How do uh, refugees that produce media, how do they voice their 
issues and concerns? And also, how does that compare to uh, what is voiced in other spaces for refugee voice, where it's encouraged or mediatized or facilitated? Um, I'm not analyzing voice uh, and especially not refugee voices in a way of how the production of voices can be improved because when it comes to political voice, that's already there. I don't think I'm in a position to tell people how to do that differently, but I am analyzing refugee voices to see how can they be a resource for policymakers, decision makers, powerful actors in the public sphere to listen to those voices and to understand better the concerns and the issues of uh, refugees and can they also use this as a resource to listen out for expertise and for structures and solutions. Great, thank you so much. Really fascinating work. Um, and thank you so much, Diana, for joining us on the, the Media Futures Spotlights. Thank you so much for inviting me. And that's it for this episode of Media Futures Spotlights. For more information about the Media Futures Hub, visit us at www mediafutureshub.org. Please rate, review and subscribe. It really does help us to find new listeners. Special thanks to our producer, the talented Cara Jensen-McKinnon and to our research assistant, the brilliant Ron Miller. This podcast was made possible by funding from the School of the Arts and Media. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll be with you again soon.